Welcome to The Lawyer's Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Stephanie Everett, and this is episode 260 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Jonathan Hawkins about succession planning for retirement, but also for disasters, like if you've been crushed by an anvil out of the blue sky. (laughs) Obviously, I'm making you say these things. (laughs) If today's podcast resonates with you, whether or not you have an anvil phobia and you haven't read the Small Farm Roadmap yet, get the first chapter right now for free at lawyers.com slash book. Today's podcast is brought to you by Rankings.io, Text Expander, and Back Office Betties. We wouldn't be able to do our show without their support, so stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So Sam, what the hell is this Anvil Day you've been talking about on Twitter, and why should we care? So you'll hear more about it in this podcast, which we recorded on a Friday afternoon when apparently I was feeling a little silly. But I think it's a great idea. So here's, here's what Anvil Day is today. The day that you are listening to this podcast, January 23rd, is the first annual Anvil Day, which will henceforth be the fourth Thursday in January every year. And Anvil Day is when you get together with your Anvil buddy to go over your succession plans. Jonathan and I are going to talk about more about this, but what you need to know is that one year from today, you should have an Anvil buddy, and you should plan to meet for an hour or two or three over coffee or cocktails or social beverages or or snacks or whatever and go over your plan. Like, what are you doing for each other? Comparing your retainer documents, your disaster plan, making sure they know how to find your client files in case something happens to you so that they can help you close down your practice, transition your clients to somebody else. Well, not so they can help you, but so they can do that when you've been crushed by an anvil. So, because, you know, anvils happen. Uh, maybe, but stuff does happen. <laughs> I'll give you that we should be prepared. And yep. and I agree that doing this kind of succession planning and prep work and I mean, some state bars are now requiring it in your annual renewal to identify who that person is. This seems more practical to me than, you know, I know some people who are like got go bags ready in case the end of the world comes. This isn't that. This is actually something that's really smart and what you should be doing for your business. Yeah, I think it's just a good idea. And making it an annual event where you update each other seems fun and calling it Anvil Day makes me laugh. So we will be uh, celebrating Anvil Day one year from today, which should give you plenty of time to work on your the first draft and find your anvil buddy and start getting things in order so that if something, if you get hit by an anvil at some point, you'll be good to go. Yeah. So now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Chris Dyer from rankings.io and then my conversation with Jonathan. My name is Chris Stryer. I'm the CEO and founder of rankings.io. We help elite personal injury attorneys dominate first page rankings. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. One of the things that you and I were talking about that we wanted to cover during this segment was how long it should take for lawyers to see results from an SEO campaign. Is it a long time? Is it years or a year? Is it months? What What is reasonable? Yeah, so that question gets hit up all the like every single prospect I talk to says how long does it take to get results and everyone says 6 months 6 months but that's kind of like an arbitrary number. So really it comes down to what's the current setup, what's their current state, how is their website, 
architecture. So sometimes a redesign may have occurred and simply fixing some 301, some 404, some, some structural issues, you can actually get results very quickly. That's the other thing that, that occurs when you see these firms that have been around forever. You get asked frequently, you know, how are these guys ranking? They're not doing anything digital. But what they have done kind of naturally is they've established their prominence through branding, through TV, and they get all these natural backlinks. And it's really hard to combat that in a short amount of time. So really, it just depends on the location, the competition, and where your current state is how many backlinks you have, how much content you have that you can use as leverage to obtain those rankings. But assuming that you've got a a good foundation to work with, the answer could be weeks? Yeah, it could be weeks. You could submit it to Google Search Console. You could, you know, get your content crawled very quickly, do the fetch and render. So it could be very quickly. A lot of times it takes more time than, than a few weeks to get the site crawled. But your most important pages that have a lot of accessibility could certainly be crawled early uh, in those first few weeks. It's just the deeper pages may take longer. It sounds to me like the trick is a blanket estimate like six months or a year is just maybe that's a rule of thumb, but not great. The reality is that if you hire an expert SEO consultant, they should be able to take a look at what you have and give you a reasonable prediction of what kinds of results you're going to see when. Absolutely. And it also comes down to production, right? So if an agency's hired, now I know it's a larger investment for more production, but if an agency comes in and does 100 high quality articles in the first month and, and has a very large link acquisition strategy with lots of hands on deck, you could receive results very quickly, you know, as opposed to the common contract that you see four blogs a month and X amount of links per month. Well, that's what everyone does. So you're not gaining any ground there. You're not gaining any market share. So say more about the the kinds of content, because I assume you're not just blasting out content in the ether. You're actually thinking about what kinds of blog posts, what kinds of content strategies are going to actually leverage work and money and budget to get the most results. Yeah. So there's three main phases of the funnel, right? So there's top of the funnel, middle of the funnel, and the bottom of the funnel. Most attorneys just do bottom of the funnel content, which is are your practice area pages, your sales pages. That's when somebody is like shopping for a lawyer. Right. that They have the intent to hire. So those pages don't have to receive as much traffic to actually generate an ROI. However, what's often ignored is the top of the funnel. That's the awareness content that can apply to a much broader audience. That content has the benefit of attracting links and can really help your link acquisition strategy. And it's often ignored. And the idea there is that what you're trying to do is make sure people understand you know, in the case of personal injury, let's say um, about what to do in the event of a car accident, or maybe even more broader, like how many car accidents are happening this month, things like, is that the kind of thing that you're talking about there? That's a great question. I would actually consider that more the middle of the funnel, the questions about legal advice. Top of the funnel, I'm talking really broad, like new technology, smart cars, smart watches, things that happen in the technology sector, where you could get potentially featured on a technology blog that links to your law firm. Because it's very difficult to do link building because nobody wants to link to a car accident lawyer. I see. The strategy there is the big strategy of getting those prominent, um, high traffic, um, high authority links from websites that then are going to boost your performance at the middle and the bottom as well. Yeah. So a lot of times with the link acquisition strategy, we will create content, all this legal content, and then try to do a link building strategy, whereas opposed, you should identify your targets and your prospects, the websites that you want to get links from, create content for them. And it's a much better strategy to help your conversions for links. 
I think what we've also revealed is that there's a lot of nuance to the work you do. (laughs) And so for listeners, if you'd like to learn more about working with rankings.io and taking advantage of that, visit rankings.io slash lawyerist to learn more. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks, Sam. I'm Jonathan Hawkins. I'm the founder of law firm GC, which is a law firm based here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I am a business and ethics lawyer for lawyers and law firms. Your website says you're a business lawyer for lawyers. That's right. That's right. So I'm curious, we've had a couple of other business lawyers for lawyers on the podcast, um, Paul Floyd, uh, Eric Cooperstein, who's the malpractice lawyer for lawyers. I'm curious how many lawyers go and hire another lawyer to do their business work? I assume you're not starving, but I mean, it, it doesn't feel like that's the kind of thing that most lawyers have the self-awareness to hire out. You'd be surprised, especially Atlanta. There are a lot of lawyers here in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the way I got into this, so I used to do a lot of business divorce work, just any type of business. Mm -hmm. And then I started uh, litigating law firm divorces. Meaning two partners are angry at each other and want to split up and take the business. Exactly. And those cases can get pretty contentious. And, you know, a lot of times they had handshake deals or uh, or they tried to use a, an operating agreement for a real estate business, for example, mm-hmm. in a law firm. It made no sense. <laughs> hey, we found this form. Let's just use it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, I don't know if they found it themselves online or somebody gave it to them. But, you know, I started to see all these issues in litigation. So, wait a second. We can draft better agreements here mm-hmm. to avoid a lot of these issues or minimize them if there ever is a dispute in the future. So I started drafting agreements, but then, you know, there's this whole set of ethics rules that that apply to us that set parameters and limits on what law firms can and can't do that, you know, don't really apply to other businesses. So, uh, and then their ethics opinions and case law. So you alluded to this a moment ago, but it is my suspicion that most lawyers don't do a lot of advanced planning around the things that eventually end up Uh, coming up when it comes to splitting up a business or somebody leaving or retiring, that kind of thing? It's been my experience a lot, do not. Now, if they've been (laughs) through it once, they they definitely plan the next time. Yeah, I bet. And I've been there too. You know, you're excited. You've got a new partner. You're about to conquer the world. Uh, Then all of a sudden you get busy. You say, we'll deal with this later. And then, you know, two years later, you're still busy and you haven't dealt with it. And then maybe somebody says, you know what, I don't want to do it anymore. And well, and it may be more complicated at that point too, right? So Exactly. You've got a lot of clients uh, you got to deal with and, and staff and leases and other things. Uh, mm-hmm. And at that point, it's, you know, we'll get it done, but it's a lot messier than it could have been if you had dealt with it on the front end. So speaking of business separations, which is what we want to focus on today, sort of, uh, is the uh, the concept of succession planning. And the ideal, as you've alluded to, is you sort of, take care of it at the beginning. It's part of your forming the business is deciding how you want the business to to end or transition. <laughs> what does the reality more often look like? Uh, the reality is, is people don't really think about it till they're ready to retire or hang it up. And by that point, you know, we can get it done. But again, it's, it's not the ideal situation. So. How much notice do you usually get? Like three months or three years? It depends. I've had some where it's, you know, now. I'm leaving now. I want to leave now. And I've had others that are a little bit better. You know, I want to do a five-year transition that I can work with. That sounds pretty reasonable. It is. And that's probably ideal because you want to you know, spend the time to transition to 
other people in your firm or to another firm or wherever, or just Mm -hmm. shut it down. Some people just want to shut it down. You and I were talking before I hit record about kind of the weirdness of the legal market. One of the ways to get out, one of the ways to plan for succession is to sell your firm, obviously. From your perspective, is there much of a buying and selling market for law firms and or what does it look like? From my experience, there's really not much. You know, you've got I know the ethics rules here in Georgia and, and most of the model rule based ethics rules allow what they say the sale of a practice. But mm-hmm. if you actually read the rule, it's almost impossible to meet all the requirements of it. Oh, really? Huh. In practical terms. So for example, the rule requires, well, it says you cannot disclose specific client information to the buyer without getting client consent. So basically, if you're thinking about selling, you got to get all your clients and say, hey, I'm thinking about selling. Can I disclose all your information to this potential buyer or potential buyers before you can disclose it? And so, you know, <laughs> from the perspective of the seller, that's just really not going to be practical. And then, you know, if I was a buyer, I would not want to buy it unless I could look under the hood and see what the cases are like, you know. And your clients would say, sure, after I've met them. Yeah. And so in that is the practicality of it is, you know, can you really go and market and sell your practice under those rules? And I don't really think you can. So my lawyer brain immediately goes to, well, easy way around that. Just come up with some way to affiliate your firms beforehand so that you're not giving it to a different company, but you're actually like, you know, sharing it with another lawyer at your firm. Does that work? Bingo. That works. Yeah, okay. That is a a (laughs) method I use a lot. So one way to do it, if you're a solo, for example, you can become affiliated of counsel with a firm. And and then that way, you're affiliated. You can share Mm -hmm. all the information. You can share fees. You can do all sorts of things that you can't do when you're not at the same firm. Is there like a reasonable overlap before they actually fire you and keep your clients? You know, typically I see, um, again, it depends on how quickly somebody wants to get out. It also depends on the the type of practice, but, you know, two to five years is usually sort of the range. That's enough time where your clients can actually get used to the new firm and it's not going to feel too crazy when you leave. Exactly. You get integrated Mm -hmm. to the new attorneys. You prove to the, the new firm that you can actually transition the clients. They're starting to perhaps see some revenue from those transition clients. and We're not talking about like a 48 hours, like we've made you of counsel two days later, we give you a big check and you walk out the door and you're done. I've never seen that. If <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody has ever seen that, I'd love to talk There's, to them. I'm just trying to find the edges, you know. <laughs> so that's one way out is, is selling over a period of time. Uh, the other way out is getting hit by a bus, right? Yeah. And that's, you know, I think any attorney, uh, particularly solos, but, um, you know, solo plus um, a team of associates needs to have what I call a triage plan. And that's, it's not a true secession orderly type plan uh, where you're selling your practice or trying to transition it. It's, uh, you know, what happens if I get hit by a bus tomorrow? Um, Who's going to take care of the clients, et cetera. I think you actually ethically have to do this, right? Like you can't, not necessarily ethically under the rules, but just like as a person, you have to decide what happens to your clients if you die or your office burns down or some, you know, you, you get stuck in Europe. I don't know. Like you have to figure that out. I agree. I think, you know, it's not required in a lot of states. There may be some states that you have to set up a plan. I think there are uh, not here in Georgia, at least not yet, but it's smart. I mean, 
you know, if you don't, do you want to leave your family holding the bag, uh, trying to clean? Well, that's my question. What happens? Like my, my wife is a lawyer. And so while I was practicing, we had sat down and like, she was my disaster plan because we had sat down and talked through this. And I made sure she knew how to access my client files, how to get my passwords, where my bank accounts were. Um, and we had, you know, kind of a, a plan for the things she would do to shut down the business and, and transition clients to new lawyers and stuff. She, so in that case, I was comfortable leaving it to my family, but we, that was a plan. And she was another lawyer who shared my ethical duties. What happens if you don't have a plan? So worst case scenario, most state bars have a little team that can go in and, and assist. Oh, I suppose. You know, they do the best they can, but they're not necessarily equipped to do it the way that you would want it to be done. And a lot of times, you know, they may come in a little late. A non-lawyer spouse doesn't even know to call the bar to help. I've had calls from from spouses before in that situation. And it's like you said, there, there may not be a record of all the, the actual clients. We don't know how to access the passwords to get in to see what the, what the status of the, uh, the cases are. Uh, and it just can be a huge mess. And it's a, stressful enough for your family. Add this on top. And then, you know, the potential malpractice that could happen in this span before the clients are sort of positioned somewhere else. And it's not like you care, but... If your kids were hoping to get any sort of life insurance inheritance or something from you, they might care. That's right. They're going against your estate. <laughs> if, yeah, I didn't really think about it in those terms. But if, if you've committed malpractice by not planning for your clients, can your clients make a claim against your estate? You know, I'm sure there's an enterprising lawyer out there that would make that claim. <laughs> but certainly, you know, let's say there's a deadline that you miss. Let's say you have a yeah. case and a statute's about two weeks away, you're ready to file the, the lawsuit and then you pass away. And then two months later, figure out it wasn't filed and, you know, you've missed the statute. I'm going to stop saying hit by a bus and start using an anvil because I think the cartoon version is funnier. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in an ideal world, if a solo comes to you and says, okay, I need my, my crash plan, my disaster plan, my triage plan, whatever, um, my anvil plan, what would the ideal plan look like? So ideally, you, you want to find another attorney um, that you trust that's in the same practice area and enter into a, an agreement that they will sort of triage your your practice um, and help transition it if necessary. And you can do a mutual agreement, sort of, you know, you agree to do theirs, they'll agree to do yours. And then once you have that in place, set up your will, your actual estate planning documents, let your spouse know who this attorney is. So that that should be in your will. Yeah, just a uh, one little paragraph that directs uh, the administrator or the executor, um, you know, who to call to get this plan triggered. To basically notify them that there is an agreement that this triage lawyer is going to come in and take over. Hmm. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. That's the document to do it in, I guess. And then in your retainer agreements, uh, you can even with your clients, you can insert, you know, a, a line or two in there that sort of notifies them. If something happens to me, I've got somebody. Seems smart. And you get disclosure and the client signs agreement. They've signed on to it. So you sort of that that makes the transition a little bit easier there. How do you make that sure that that will work? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking you and that lawyer need to have a plan for how they will access your practice management software, how they will access your client files, um, how they can 
get in the front door of your office, right? I mean, exactly. There's some planning around that. That's part of it too. So you need to have that lawyer come in your office. You need to show them uh, where the stuff is. If you have some staff, you want to introduce <laughs> that lawyer to the staff and say, if something happens, this lawyer is going to be coming in. You know, I think, you know, I know you've talked about a lot on your podcast in the past. Uh, I know Stephanie talks about it, but it's really important to have systems procedures, processes in place. It's good for your business, but it's good for this purpose as well. And then you want to show these to that triage lawyer. I'm going to suggest that every every solo in particular, when they get their anvil buddy, they set aside one day a year, and we're going to call it anvil day from now on. And that day is when you get together with your anvil buddy and kind of catch up on these things. Make sure you still know how to get into passwords and files and in the front door and stuff. That's, uh, we're going to, we're, it's an annual holiday, um, from now on. <laughs> That's a great idea. I'm, I may, I may borrow that. Um, yep. It's, it's definitely called Anvil Day. I'm really quite certain of that. We need to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about less about anvils and more about how this might work, how succession might work differently at a firm with at least two, uh, partners. So we'll be right back. Support for today's episode comes from Back Office Betty's, the only virtual receptionist company exclusively dedicated to small law firms that offers unlimited calls. Betty's boutique service boasts customized call handling and virtual assistant services provided by highly trained, relentlessly friendly team members ready to help grow your firm even when you're out of the office. Visit backofficebetty's.com slash lawyers to get a free one-week trial and use the promo code podcast to receive $150 off your first month of service. Support for today's episode comes from Rankings.io, a search engine optimization agency working exclusively for personal injury law firms. Simply put, Rankings.io helps personal injury law firms dominate first-page rankings. You'll never have to chase them for an update or hunt them down for an answer. Your clients expect you to be accessible, and Rankings will meet that standard for communication and transparency. You'll have a full team of SEO specialists fighting to put you at the top of Google search results. Personal injury lawyer SEO is all they do, so all their processes, playbooks, and people are completely focused on generating qualified cases for your firm. Best of all, you'll be one of an elite few. Delivering exceptional service and results requires focus, so Rankings.io carefully vets clients before accepting them. It's an ideal fit for growth-oriented personal injury law firms. To see if you're a fit, visit Rankings.io slash Lawyerist to get started. Lawyerist podcast listeners can get 20% off an SEO discovery audit using coupon code Lawyerist. Unlock your team's productivity with Text Expander. You can easily insert text snippets in any application from a library created by you and your team. You'll reduce errors and increase productivity. Text Expander can save you so much time, it's like getting an extra employee. Text Expander is available for Mac, Windows, iPhone, and iPad, and Chrome. Show listeners can get 20% off their first year. Visit textexpander.com/podcast to learn more about Text Expander. Okay, uh, we're back, Jonathan. So uh, I am reluctantly going to transition us away from talking about anvils hitting solos, which doesn't mean I think solos ought to be hit by anvils. I just I just like that. And let's talk about when there's more than one, um, or even when it's a solo, I suppose. But when when you have a partnership, whether it's two or or seventeen, um, what does it look like when someone wants to retire or leave? That's different, and and how does that succession planning work? Again, depends on the on the firm and the size of the firm. I have often when I draft partnership agreements, um, there are provisions in there that specifically address sort of the transition, uh, whether it's uh, a sort of an orderly retirement 
um, what that means, you know, how do you transition the clients, uh, what sort of quote retirement benefits are you going to get paid and over what time. That feels crazy to think about like 20 years before it comes up. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, if, if I'm a 30 year old lawyer partnering with another 30 year old, you know, that's so far down the road. And I, I've had some strike that paragraph out of the partnership agreement. They're just like, we'll just mm. delete that. We don't need to talk about retirement. But when you have different uh, generations, uh, it definitely becomes important. So you may have a, a 58-year-old and a 32-year-old uh, partnering up, and you want to plan on that. Which, at, like we started with, may be a strategic decision where the younger lawyer is intending to take it over, so you might have an idea of what that ought to look like. Yeah. And I've structured those before as well. You mentioned an interesting problem before we hit record, which I had never thought about, but seems like a really important one. I don't know what the critical mass is, but but let's say you've got a firm of 10 partners and one of them is going to leave and they leave behind a book of business. And so partner two decides to take over their book of business. Well, holy crap, that partner now has essentially a double book of business. Why would they stay at that firm where they're still getting the same partnership share? You know, that is, that is a big problem. <laughs> I've been privy to conversations where uh, a senior partner would say, my plan is I'm going to retire and I'm going to sell my book of business, quote, to the firm. And let's say that partner is a, a, a transactional partner. The litigation partners are like, why do I want to pay for that? Because it's going to land in the lap of, of one of my transactional partners. Mm. And then mm-hmm. once the the book of business been transitioned, they're going to come back next year and say, you know what, I've got a much bigger book of business now. You got to pay me more uh, or I'm leaving. Um, and, you know, you can't really, for the most part, have non-competes in law firms, and non-solicits. So there's really not a whole lot you could do. So uh, why would the firm, and when I say the firm, I mean all the partners chip in to pay for a book of business for one or two partners. I feel like this is a really good example of what is so wrong with the way that law firms are structured, but let's move on. Um, (laughs) Is it realistic then to expect that one partner might buy out another partner or that you might sell your book of business to someone at another firm? Yes. I think that's probably the easier approach is you find your um, lieutenants or successor attorneys, and you could even break up your book among the different attorneys and say, you know, I think you've done a lot of work for these clients. I want to transition those to you and these others over here go to this other partner. And then you basically have deals where those partners are basically buying you out, not the firm. It's the partners. Hmm. Very interesting. Does that work? I mean, I suppose it does. I think so. I mean, uh, you know, it seems to. Um, Again, you've got to have people willing to do it. The other thing we talked about was, you know, how do you pay? Is it a lump sum or is it paid over time? And I've rarely seen a lump sum paid um, or not a very large one. And so the successful transition and a sort of a basically a payment plan over time is the way you would address it. So if, the, if the, you, know, you have a written agreement and the way the ethics rules work, if you're within the same firm and you have an agreement on how to split fees, you know, you don't have to disclose it to clients. You don't have to get their approval. Do you have to be at the same firm during the entire payout? Um, no. Like if we execute that agreement and then I leave, but it, I keep getting paid out over five years, does that cause a problem? No. Okay. Uh, at least not the way I read it, read the rules. If you were at the same firm, and you enter into an agreement on how to split fees, there's an exception, at least in Georgia, uh, or a comment in the rules that say the sort of the disclosure requirements and approval from the clients don't apply. Yeah. 
we skipped over one of the key things and one of the most popular questions, I'm sure, which is, okay, so what is my book of business worth? Or what is my solo practice worth or my small firm? I've heard that a lot. I know some lawyers like Patrick Pallas out in Washington are trying to work on ways of valuing firms so that they can come in and buy them. But how do you figure that out? <laughs> what, do you, what is it worth? Uh, well, my smart-ass uh, response is it's worth whatever, some, whatever somebody will pay you. I like smart-ass responses. <laughs> you know, the way I look at yeah. it, there, there are different types of practices are worth um, different amounts. So there are practices like high-volume uh, residential real estate closing firms or high-volume advertising uh, lawyer firms. And that could be you know, personal injury, divorce, uh, whatever. There's more of a machine behind it. There's an operation. You've got lots right. of employees. You've got systems in place. Um, you know, they're coming to the firm, not necessarily to one lawyer. Those firms, in my view, are worth a lot more and would be worth spending more on because you're, you're, you're buying an operation. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And then on the flip side, you've got a solo that, you know, it's a pure referral-based business. You know, that that's just going to be worth less to a potential buyer because it's hard to transition the referral relationships. I mean, it, it can be done, but it's, it's, it's a longer process and it's more difficult. It seems to me too that buyers, that is other law firms, other lawyers, don't necessarily value law firm businesses in the way that other businesses might value businesses that they're trying to acquire. I think that's right. What's up with that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, lawyers, uh, for the most part, we're not very good business people. Yeah, that's a thing. You know, another issue that I, I've thought a lot about, and, and I know you've had people on talk about it, is the prohibition of non-lawyers owning or investing in law firms. That is a huge component in all of this as well. You know, other businesses, you know, a car wash or whatever, uh, anybody can own that. So you could get a private equity fund that's their their goal is just to buy up a bunch of them and you know use economies of scale to make them all run better. Uh, but they have access to capital. They can go out and raise money to mm -hmm. be able to do it, get investors where lawyers pretty much either got to have the money or you're going to have to borrow it from a bank or some lender, and it just limits your ability to go out and roll up a bunch of law firms. It sounds like Patrick Palace is, is doing something. We definitely know some firms, in, especially in lab, who are at the point where their firms are running efficiently enough that they can start thinking about just, they just need to feed more clients in the front end of the, of the machine. They've got a level of quality. They've got their procedures down. They know how they're doing things. I think Patrick is one of those. And so they're starting to think about, well, how can we just buy practices with potential, um, essentially buy clients in, in bulk. <laughs> and I think that's an attitude that a, not a lot of lawyers traditionally have. And I mean, I said to you earlier, the, the reality is, and this is a little bit weird, but if I'm a personal injury lawyer considering buying your firm, if you close your firm without a buyer, I'm still going to get some of your clients. <laughs> that, that is the way the local market is going to work. So, which is kind of a weird thing. And maybe people bank on that. I don't know. You could buy, you know, uh, a, a reputation. Let's say someone who's been around a long time, mm -hmm. and you you buy that reputation, um, but you got to keep that lawyer on. It'd have to be an extended buyout. Mm -hmm. um, and and you're right, lawyers don't think this way. It's just it has not really been in the law practice this kind of thinking. It is legitimately more complicated for some reasons, but it's also just not a thing that we do. But know? I think it's great that people are thinking about it and trying it. I think there are ways to do it. Again, you know, you go back to the, you know, 
you can't really have non-competes. Um, now, if you sell a law practice, you can get a non-compete. But again, you've got to do it the right way. But if, if you do a partial purchase or a sort of an affiliation, that lawyer could just say, you know, I don't, I don't like it. I'm leaving and I'm going to take all my clients with me. So there's risk there. I think there's probably ways you can address it and minimize it, but, but there is some risk there. Where in another business, um, you know, I buy the car wash, I'm going to lock down that seller with a five-year non-compete, non-solicit, all sorts of agreements. Right. Totally. So I'm assuming our listeners are now going, holy shit, they're right. I do need to plan for my anvil day. Um, and I also need to um, figure out what's going to happen to my firm after I'm done with it. Um, where should they start? Where should they go for resources or what should they start thinking about? Most state bars have resource for them in terms of the, the Anvil mm-hmm. sort of plan. There, there are you know resources you can find online. Type in law firm disaster plan in Google and you'll, you'll, you'll find some. You know, I have found that a lot of lawyers know that they should be doing this, but getting them to actually do it's hard. And this is confession time for me. I knew for years I needed to get a will. And it took me about eight years to do it. And, you know, oh man, my wife and I are—we've got you beat. I think it was—we started exactly. drafting our will ten years so ago. Like, and I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. <laughs> Finally, we were going to Europe, and I said, "All right, we're doing it." We signed it the day before we left. So, yeah, <laughs> I think it's similar for for this. But you know, I think you know it won't take very long. You know, on the crisis plan, find a lawyer that your buddy lawyer. Um, have the conversation and then, you know, make a commitment to each other that you're, you're going to get it done. Uh, well, if this, uh, if this Friday, it's Friday afternoon as we're recording this. And if this silliness, uh, sticks with me, maybe we'll plan Anvil day for the anniversary of this podcast, uh, hitting the airwaves and, uh, and we'll make sure everybody gets going. (laughs) (laughs) Jonathan, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been fun and it's been informative. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Are you interested in implementing the ideas you've heard on today's podcast into your law firm? Could you use a little help? Hey guys, it's Stephanie, the VP of Community Success here at Lawyerist, and I'd love to help you tackle your business or take it to the next level. Head over to go.lawyerist.com backslash start to sign up for a quick call with me, and let's talk about how Lawyerist can help you create your best law firm. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.